Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, it's the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. We've got to the end of a week in one piece. Well, some of us have, Prime Minister. Uh, coming up on today's episode, apropos of nothing, how do you remove a Tory Prime Minister? Do the Conservatives deserve their reputation for regicide? We'll speak to people who are in the room when Margaret Thatcher, David Cameron and Theresa May headed out of that famous black door. Uh, we've got Sir Anthony Seldon, the historian, and Stephen Swinford from The Times giving us their take on Boris Johnson's prospects too. Uh, before that, columnist panel, as ever, will be formal. Uh, Melanie Reed and James Forsyth. But as it's Friday, we always kick off the podcast by saying, What did we learn this week? All these men in trouble. Prince Andrew is heading to court. Novak Djokovic is off the court. And Boris Johnson caught himself out. Mr. Speaker, I want to apologise. Suddenly, the entire nation felt like one of his ex wives. Not sorry for what he did, just sorry he got caught. But there is one woman who he's not going to charm Sue Gray. 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 The more you repeat it, the less sense it makes. Exactly how long does it take to realise that you're at a party? 25 minutes. Bit weird. And then what? With hindsight, I should have sent everyone back inside. Normally he's the king of the hasty withdrawal when he realises he's done something that could come back to haunt him. Still, he's not the only person to get into some bother this week. Michael Gove got stuck in a lift, which meant everyone made this joke. Uh, You successfully levelled me up. Jacob Rees-Mogg got struck down by a terrible case of the pot calling the kettle useless. Douglas Ross has always been quite a lightweight figure. Prompting Newsnight's Kirsty Walk to make this noise. Oh. Barry Gardner's been enjoying a few too many Chinese takeaways. Quite simply, I was shocked today um, to find out that uh, she had been engaged in illegal activity. Maybe you could compare notes with Boris Johnson. And Keir Starmer finally got to use the phrase which until now he'd only been able to use shouting at his own reflection in the mirror. Will he do the decent thing and resign? And now it's emerged there was yet another party at number 10, this time with a suitcase full of booze. You can't help feeling the next time Boris Johnson packs his bags, it won't be full of gin. And that is what we learned this week. Right, columnist panel time now. It's Friday, so it must be Melanie Reid and James Forsyth. Morning, James. Morning, Matt. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. And uh, Melanie Reid. Morning, Melanie. Morning, Matt. Morning. So, um, <laughs> I'm gonna, I know some people will get cross and they'll say, why are you still talking about this? Uh, but there's a reason why. It's that's because the stories just keep on coming. Uh, James, do you think there was a single day in the last two years when there wasn't a party going on in Downing Street? I think the problem for them is that they can't now say that 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 you know that this was a one-off event, or um, and I think for Boris Johnson the difficulty is that 
the revelation this week that he, however briefly, uh, attended one of them makes it harder for him to say, oh, well, look, these went on, but I'm the prime minister. I didn't know they were happening. And I, I mean, that, that, those things are all meaning that this story won't go away. And I think one of the things to watch for now is how Tory associations react to this. Um, one member of the government payroll was uh, telling me that they are now coming under kind of huge pressure from their constituency association to act. And I think this is one of the big changes. You know, you know during the kind of height of all the Brexit troubles, Tory constituency associations were generally kind of rock solid behind Boris Johnson. And any Tory MP who was critical of him were generally going to get an earwigging from their association chairman. I think the opposite is now happening. Uh, yeah, we've seen you've seen that sort of um, the, the local associations start speaking out, and that actually by you know I suspect over the weekend we might see more Tory MPs coming out and joining that political colossus that is Andrew Bridgen in uh, in calling for him to go. Um, uh, Melanie, um, as our spokesman for all matters Scottish, how's this going down north of the border? Well, I mean, as you know, um, Douglas Ross has has. Um, has been maligned as a lightweight for for saying that that um, that Boris should resign if it's shown that that he he was at the party and did wrong, um, and so he's he's put himself out on a limb. But he is doing he's being a complete pragmatist um, because he knows that uh, that that the, the, the Boris Johnson is an electoral negative. You know he's toxic in Scotland, and um, if there's going to be another referendum in 2023. Then uh, it's it's absolutely in in the Scottish Conservatives' interest to get rid of him now because because Boris Johnson is the SNP's best asset. So it's uh, you know he 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 he's probably delighted when Rhys Mogg calls him calls him a lightweight because um, Rhys Mogg <laughs> is is, 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 is is he has a similar you know don't remember Re- Ian Martin in the Times this morning good column um, talking about when Rhys Mogg stood in Scotland, you know, an old Etonian standing in, in an ex-mining oh, county. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Took his and, and campaigning, didn't he? That precisely. You see, you, what a memory you have for details. <laughs> and and, and um, so he he's in the same bracket. So, you know, one of them calling uh, Ross a lightweight, that, that, that feeds into... That feeds into a conversation which the Scottish Tories actually are very keen to have at the moment, I think. Um, realistically, James, I mean, Boris Johnson doesn't strike me as the sort of person he'll give up without a fight or, you know, necessarily do the right thing. Does it require movement from the cabinet? I mean, Andrew Bridgen is not going to bring down a prime minister, as he discovered during his sort of three year campaign against Theresa May. It does require movement from others, doesn't it? Now, I, I know on Twitter, uh, Matt, that you, you, you were a um... Uh, very, very keen to, to dismiss uh, Andrew Bridgen. I mean, there is one significant factor about it, though, which is um, you've seen this with Jacob Rees-Mogg's attack on Douglas Ross, that, that, that they're very keen to kind of wave the bloody shirt of Brexit to suggest that the only people unhappy about this are people who are really on the other side of the Brexit divide from Boris Johnson. Yeah. I think the fact that you've now, that now two of the five Tory MPs calling for Boris Johnson to go are levers makes that more difficult. I mean, in terms of mechanisms, I think there are there are essentially kind of two ways that uh, a Tory leader can be forced out. One is the 54 letters to Graham Brady. And the other is uh, the ruse that I think ultimately led to Theresa May's resignation, which is, you know, 65 Tory associations can request, you know, a special conference, which can then vote on 
leader's position. Now, that vote isn't binding, but it, it would be beyond difficult for anyone who had lost that vote to, to carry on a, 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 as leader. I mean, those, those are the two mechanisms and the two risks to Boris Johnson right now. Well, I suppose we'll wait and see. Do you, do you get the sense that, the, that anyone in the cabinet is ready to step forward and take action, James? I, I, I would be surprised if there were cabinet resignations um, because I, I think it's going to, I think there would be a kind of question of why now and the timing. And I think also think that as um, uh, Steve Swinsford reports in the Times this morning, because the Grey Report is meant to be a kind of factual account of what happened, the Grey Report is not going to contain a sentence saying the Prime Minister should resign. And I also yeah. don't think it's going to contain a sentence because it's not its job to do so, to say the Prime Minister knowingly broke the rules. And so I, I think in terms of what the trigger is for, for Cabinet resignations, uh, you know, for people who have gone this far, I don't mean that is obvious. I mean, I think the bigger question is, is how many letters go into Graham Brady and what Tory associations start to do? I think, you know, Tory MPs are back in their constituencies today. And I think that that is going to be very significant on them. Um, one minister who's very keen for Boris Johnson to survive said to me, look, you know, I'm going to see when I go back to my constituency, how my association are, and also, you know, kind of how people he sees in the supermarket are, you know, I mean, what do people think? And I think one of the problems is but. Uh, number 10 is that this this story about these parties on the eve of Prince Philip's funeral, you know, but, but they, they, they are just going to particularly drive the point home to people and I think increase public anger and I think if, if and I think one of the things you're going to see is if, if the numbers keep getting worse in the polls, you know, you go poll for the Times has had the Tories in the 20s twice this week uh, and you know, Tories who go out canvassing ahead of these May local elections get doors slammed in their faces I mean, that, that will push more people to act. And I suppose, yeah, and I suppose, go on, sorry, go on, Billy. No, just very briefly, on behalf of those of us who aren't in the Westminster bubble, can I, can I ask who's, who's kind of leaking? Is it, is it Dominic Cummings who's driving this? Is this, is this where all these leaks are coming from, these killer leaks, that the, the drip, drip, drip of, I mean, you know, So I think on the, on the main... So I think on the May 20th party, I think mean, you know, it, it was a kind of a journalistic kind of treasure hunt, if you see what I mean. You know, Dominic Cummings said, why doesn't everyone go and look at this? And, and you know, and I think you know, people went off and, and, and pushed their sources for information. And, and that is, I think, where that one came from. Where the story in today's papers came from, I don't know. But I think, the, I think one of the things I would say is there has been a lot of churn on both the political and the civil service side. In, in Downing Street, and that just means that there are people who know things. Yeah, and I suppose, because the thing about the Dominic Cummings was he sort of floated the May the 20th party last week in, his, in one of his enormous blogs, um, uh, making clear that that definitely was a party, which he wasn't at. But the was it May the 15th, uh, sitting around with the wine and cheese board that he was at, because we saw that incredible photo taken from... Uh, high, high above the garden. That definitely wasn't a party. That was a work meeting, which just happened to involve the prime minister's wife and a and a cheese board. So it's sort of interesting that, that in, a, in an attempt to you know nobody's talking about that cheese board one anymore because we're talking about the 
the party that, that Dominic Cummings wasn't at. But I'm, 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 I'm f- f- call me cynical, call me cynical. I'm, I'm probably maligning, probably maligning uh, Dominic Cummings. Uh, let's talk about the um, uh, the other guy who's dominated the front pages today, giving giving Boris Johnson a bit of a respite uh, when it comes to the front pages, and that's um, Prince Andrew, the Duke of York, uh, finally stripped of his. Uh, uh, lots of his military titles and so on, uh, to try and sort of save the monarchy almost. Your, your thoughts, Melanie? I find you know, it, it had to happen. It had to happen because uh, it's it's going to be the it's the Queen's Platinum Jubilee this year, and there's no way that the the institution of the royal family would allow that to be. And they had to sort of play down um, Prince Andrew's. Uh, role in the family as much as possible. But can I just say that I find it desperately sad on a human level, you know, the the, the poignancy of that face-to-face meeting. Um, she's an old lady. He's her son. She loves him. Um, and she had to confront him and, um, and, uh, and say, you know, no longer, boy. Very hard. Very hard indeed. But I mean, he's the one who's put that in, in that position, not just by his association with Jeffrey Epstein, but also the fact that he he refused to give them up before, knowing the damage that was doing to well, his mother and the monarchy generally. Yeah, I mean, he's 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 a bit of a plonker, isn't he? But but it, <laughs> but it, it, it I mean, he is. But it, it doesn't it does not take away from the fact that. She's a very old lady, and she's his mom, and and she loves him, and it must be hard, you know. It, it, it I don't care what, what, um, what, 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 whether they're royals or, or peasants, you know. It's 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 hard doing that stuff. Is hard for an old lady, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's brutal, brutal. Um, uh, James, do you think? I mean, talking like drawing a line under things. Do you think this will draw the line under things for Prince Andrew? Not for Prince Andrew, I think, but I think, it's, as Melanie said, it, it's clearly designed to try and kind of uh, protect the monarchy from whatever uh, fallout there is from this US court case. Uh, and, you know, and as Melanie said, you, on, on a human level, you know, for someone who's just lost their husband to then essentially have to, to, to kind of banish their son is, is, you know, cannot be easy. But I think it is also another reminder of, uh, you know, the ruthlessness that the monarchy as the institution is prepared to display when it feels that something is threatening its survival. Yes, yeah, that's that, that's very true. And maybe maybe we will yet see the uh, the ruthlessness of the Conservative Party to do uh, to to do much the same. Uh, really good to speak to you both as ever. Formel, it's James Forsyth, Melanie Reid. Thanks for talking us through both those stories. And you can read James's column, uh, which is online right now. Boris Johnson can't count on the loyalty of his MPs. Uh, you can catch Melanie in the Times uh, magazine tomorrow, and my column in the Times as well tomorrow, uh, taking a look at the most maligned. Uh, um, person in the whole of this uh, party for Marco at uh, the Danish Street Garden itself hasn't it su- suffered enough uh, you can get yourself, pick yourself up a copy of the paper or uh, go online and subscribe right now go to thetimes.co.uk and uh, get yourself a digital subscription up next how do you remove a Tory Prime Minister just in case you need to know in the next day or two Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. Yes. Is this the week that Boris Johnson's premiership came to an end? How do you know when the game is up? This is the Times Radio Guide to Tory Regicide. We'll hear from people who were in the room when their leader handed in their notice when they realised it was all over. But first, let's hear from the political historian and author of The Impossible Office, The History of the British Prime Minister, Sir Anthony Seldon. More than that. Morning, Anthony. Um, morning. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. Um uh, we should um, uh, talk, first of all, about this idea that the Tories are a ruthless party who, who oust their, uh, their leaders when they're not up to the job. Um, is that, is that, is that a, a reputation that they deserve? Well, yes, it is, if you look at <laughs> uh, history. And if, more so than Labour. So what does make the Conservative Party, what what defines the Conservative Party and government uh, is a ruthless hunger or appetite for power and its willingness to jettison leaders, but also jettison ideologies and organisational structures, anything to cling on to power. We have a very hungry animal in the Conservative Party, partly because it's not so wedded to ideology as Labour. So it absolutely is. And the moment that the uh, party uh, decides that their current uh, boss is no longer their best electoral asset, uh, then uh, the trash bin is the next logical uh, place (laughs) for them. And what what strikes me, but we'll, we're going to go through through what happened with Margaret Thatcher, uh, David Cameron, and Theresa May in particular. But um, what strikes me is it, even uh, the rules have changed at various times. You know, put up and shut ups no longer an option, and and so on. But actually, to some extent, it doesn't really matter what rules are in place. It's never quite the rules or the process as set down by the sort of Conservative Party rules. Very rarely that's the way that they go. It's pressure. It's people telling them f- to their face. It's you know, something going wrong on their watch, you know, uh, 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 it's not it's not necessarily the rules as laid down. There's always a way to get rid of a leader who's not who's now been judged to be a liability. Yeah, I mean, absolutely right. So uh, the pressure on Churchill to go, I mean, an iconic figure uh, or Thatcher, the two uh, most iconic uh, leaders of the last hundred years in the party uh, were both um, pressured and pressured to go out, but both were operating under very different rule systems. Under Churchill in 1955, it was still the magic circle uh, advising uh, the monarch of the day. 
uh, by the time of Thatcher in 1990, this procedure of uh, consulting MPs, uh, their voting uh, was in place. So absolutely right. Uh, there just comes that moment uh, which is almost palpable. You can almost touch it uh, where they work out uh, that they no longer want their current incumbent. And then uh, the attention very rapidly shifts to who is going to do better. And from your experience, having having uh, researched these things, seen these things unfold, are we at that moment, do you think, with Boris Johnson? We are having a sniff at that moment, uh, at the moment. <laughs> uh, M- uh, Conservative MPs are using all their um, uh, nasal uh, senses to really, uh, you know, what are they doing? They are testing opinion in their constituencies. Uh, they're talking to each other. Uh, they're talking to um, uh, potential uh, leaders. Uh, and we are in that liminal space. Uh, but no, I don't think that uh, that moment has yet come. Uh, but we'll know it when it does. I mean, it may be that we have to wait for this uh, this uh, grey report to come. It may not be grey. It may be black and white. Or it may be grey, and it may, if it's grey, it will go on then, and there'll be a moment at some point in the future. I mean, all we know about Johnson is is like we know know about all of them. That moment will come, impossible though it seems, when the figure is very strong. Uh, yeah, but we'll see. We'll see when we get to that moment, uh, as of when we do. Uh, Sandy Sultan, really good to speak to you. Author of many biographies of prime ministers, but also the impossible office, the history of the British Prime Minister. So he's he's, uh, he's chronicled many of those moments. Smelling for that moment is a very good, uh, a good colourful metaphor. But what is it like then? When when do you when you know the time is up? When you when you can smell that that moment has come? What's it like being in the room? Let's start with Margaret Thatcher. And her downfall was back in 1990. Michael Hasseltine had mounted a leadership challenge, and Thatcher didn't get the numbers she needed to see him off in the first round. That challenge itself had been triggered by the resignation of Jeffrey, Jeffrey Howe as Deputy Prime Minister in the, uh, the House. He gave a devastating statement in the House of Commons, and that was what got Michael Hesseltine thinking. To be honest, I understood clearly what he was saying, but in retrospect, I think I misunderstood it. You remember the words he used were... The time has come for others to consider their own response to the tragic conflict of loyalties with which I have myself wrestled for perhaps too long. And I I was sitting quite close to him in the Commons um, and uh, I thought when he said it's now up to others, he was actually thinking about me. I didn't think I would win. But I knew that the Conservatives had to change the leader and change the poll tax if they were to have a chance of winning any subsequent general election. So, I mean, you can never completely dissociate your own personal interests in these matters. But by and large, I was convinced we had to change the leader. I mean, what people were saying, some of these were her natural allies in the party. Look, have you got the balls for it? I mean, are you going to run away? Everybody knows that the situation is untenable. And you're seen and have been for years now as a a figure who could potentially lead the party. I knew that was the end of my chances. Uh, I was quite clear about that, that uh, if I might well have beaten her on the second round, 
but once the, uh, the campaign was opened up, then I would be seen as the assassin, someone who was seen as so divisive a figure in the party. I think they were quite wrong. Of course, I would think that, but um, <laughs> uh, that was a very strong feeling at the time. Uh, that was uh, Michael Heseltine explaining uh, his role in Margaret Thatcher's downfall. But John Whittingdale was Thatcher's political secretary, and he explained what the pivotal moment was. I certainly don't think she thought that she was going to lose a vote of the parliamentary party. And Geoffrey Howe's resignation was the sort of pivotal moment, even though relations between her and Geoffrey Howe hadn't been great ever since she moved him from being foreign secretary to leader of the House of Commons. You know, when he came to resign and he made that very famous speech in the Chamber of the House of Commons about the broken cricket bat. Mr Speaker, I believe that both the Chancellor and the Governor are cricketing enthusiasts. So I hope there's no monopoly of cricketing metaphors. It's rather like sending your opening batsman to the crease, only for them to find, the moment the first balls are bowled, that their bats have been broken before the game by the team captain. <laughs> And she sat on the front bench listening to him, and she knew from that moment that this was very serious. And the Geoffrey Howe speech was almost an invitation to Michael Heseltine to pose a challenge, which, of course, he did. I'm afraid that the campaign amongst MPs was very much a, a failure to grasp the depth of concern there was. Those who were saying to the team, oh, yes, of course, of course we'll support Margaret Thatcher, they were sort of written down as, as supporters without any further checks. You know, we now know, and I mean, I've been involved in leadership campaigns uh, amongst the parliamentary party. And, and now, of course, you know, you don't just accept that. You, you check and check and check. You constantly collect information. And, you know, unless you've heard from five different sources that somebody is publicly committed, you don't assume they are. I mean, I think part of the problem was that she had very strong support particularly on the back benches and in the junior ranks of the government. But among the cabinet, there were quite a lot of people who were never that strong sympathisers uh, with her. And therefore, you know, they essentially told her that they, most of them sort of said it with tone of deep regret and then said, you know, well, if you insist on standing again, well, you know, of course I will support. But they made it clear that they didn't think she should do so. Uh, there was John Whittendale, former political secretary to uh, Theresa May. Well, when the end finally came, former private secretary at number 10, Caroline Slowcock, was in the cabinet room when Margaret Thatcher told her cabinet she was quitting. You know, I, I was the only other woman in the cabinet room when this was happening, and I went in expecting just to see a bit of drama, a bit of history. I'm a civil servant, you know, so the next prime minister, you know, will be coming in shortly. I wasn't expecting to get emotional, uh, but then, you know, the sight of all those men who the night before had told her that they would support her, but they didn't think she could win. They were all round the table, and there was just her, and she had this short statement that she dictated earlier, and she could not read it out. She kept on breaking down in tears. You know, her voice which is normally, you know, pretty sort of steady, just could not be kept under control. Somebody offered to read it out for her, but she said no. And obviously she was just determined to finish. You know, she wasn't, I've started, I'm going to finish. So she got to the end finally. And then, you know, she said, I don't think any of you will have heard that. Um, so I'll read it again. And then she went through the whole extraordinarily painful process. And I started, and I wasn't the only one in the room, I started crying. It, it was the most painful 
moment of my of my working life. I, I don't think anyone wanted to be in that room at that point. She collected herself and um, she went to go to see the Queen. And when she came back, the the door of Number Ten closed. You know, the sanctuary because there was you know outside there was media everywhere, and she literally collapsed crying and. You know, we had to send her personal secretary, her diary secretary, Amanda, who'd known her for years. She sort of ran down the long corridor to the foyer, just picked her up, put her arms around her and took her up to the flat. In a way, that's what number 10 is like. You're seeing scenes that nobody else sees. An hour or so later, she went out and she gave the performance of her life, really, in the House of Commons. Caroline Slowcock, former uh, private secretary to Margaret Thatcher, on those final moments well, her successor was almost uh, bumped off as well. John Major, in 1995, had so much trouble with his party, he triggered his own put-up-or-shut-up contest. John Redwood put up, and John, uh, John Major beat him and shut him up. Of course, it was the electorate who then removed John Major from office in 1997. So we fast-forward to 2016. David Cameron had promised to stay on even if he'd lost the Brexit referendum. So, man of his word... He resigned immediately. But the British people have made a very clear decision to take a different path. And as such, I think the country requires fresh leadership to take it in this direction. I love this country and I feel honoured to have served it. Yeah, that speech on the morning after the referendum fired the starting gun on a leadership contest that was then expected to last for months. But then Andrea Leadsom gave an interview to Rachel Sylvester in The Times boasting about being a mother... It caused such a furore. She quit the race, abruptly ending the Cameron era when Theresa May was the only was the last woman left standing. Well, Gabby Burton, now Baroness Burton, was a close aide and press secretary to David Cameron for a decade, and was there during those final days. I mean, my my last few days in, in Number Ten were kind of slightly strange because because obviously we we thought we were going to have a bit longer. Yeah. Uh, so we, you know, we had the terrible shock and awfulness and ugh. Uh, of everything that went on as we know and then we thought well actually you know you can sort of have a few more weeks just you know trying to leave in good order and all the rest of it and then of course that was then sort of cut short thanks to your colleague Rachel you know um, <laughs> she only wrote down I've, what she said and put I've, it in I've, the paper no, I know I do and then suddenly, you know, it, was, it really was all over. So it was, it was two shocks, really. And so what was that like, the speech that he gave outside yeah. number 10? And then he turns and yes. goes back in for the last time. Yeah, God, that was really... I remember I was there just as he went out. I sort of thought to myself, right, I was there right at the beginning. I'm going to get my elbows out and get there right at the end. So you were behind the door? Yeah. 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 I'm not sure I was entirely helpful, though, because I sort of said something to him. And, and he said, please... You're going to make me cry. <laughs> so, Before he even went out? Yeah. That would have been terrible if you'd terrible. been responsible for that. Terrible. Can you imagine? What a disservice. <laughs> <laughs> who, needs, who needs advisors like me? What did you say to him? That it's... I just said, you know, you, you should be proud. You've, you've done, you know, you, you've done a good job. Um, and then... Yeah. And, yeah, so there we go. So he goes, and then he comes back in again. And Ca- come, came back in again, and then... There were tears then. Oh, yeah, I mean, there were quite, you know, we were, well, actually, in fairness, he was pretty, there would have been tears behind closed doors, of course, but he was pretty sort of gritted, gritted teeth at that point. Because he, he, at that, those moments where everyone was sort of, had potential just to kind of collapse in a heap, he was, he knew that we couldn't collapse in a heap. Of course you can't. You've got to carry on and you've got to, you know, this was, it felt so um, cliff edge like for the country. I mean, what 
constitutionally what was going to happen you know it was it was really really it is really serious times so there was no you couldn't really indulge yourself too much on that front we govern far too much for the short term you know we've got a this is our announcement and this is our policy and actually call it a different name fine but if something's working you carry it on and you know that and because you know short-termism is the huge enemy to good governance and to good outcomes yeah, yeah. That was Baroness Burton talking about uh, when her boss, David Cameron, left Downing Street in 2016. He went out, in came Theresa May, and she was riding high for a while. Uh, then she called the general election in 2017, lost a majority, but still survived. But it was Brexit, the endless Brexit shenanigans, that piled the pressure on her. She survived a vote of no confidence in late 2018. But then finally, in the summer of 2019... This. I will shortly leave the job that it has been the honour of my life to hold. The second female Prime Minister, but certainly not the last. I do so with no ill will, but with enormous and enduring gratitude to have had the opportunity to serve the country I love. That was Theresa May on the steps of uh, number 10. What was it like behind that famous black door? Paul Harrison was Theresa May's press secretary in her final brutal days, months and years. Working in number 10 always feels like a privilege. And there will be times when your boss, the Prime Minister, feels under particular pressure. At those moments, the privilege kind of gets supplemented somehow by kind of a sense of isolation sometimes. Uh, when you can tell that you're kind of the focus of the country's sort of political attention, but that things aren't necessarily going quite as you might want them to, that can be a, a relatively sort of lonely feeling. Uh, and, you know, I think that has an effect on everybody inside. I think one of the big things that makes a difference to the way that staff feel through a crisis when they're trying to support the PM is kind of how united the building is. So, you know, during actually even some of the darkest days with Theresa May in office, it felt like there was quite a lot of unity and you know, quite a lot of togetherness as we tried to solve, you know, not always with a huge amount of success, as we tried to solve some of these problems. And I don't know whether that is always replicated in, uh, in every Downing Street that operation that's, that's going through a crisis. I think, though, under Theresa, there was certainly a sense after the 2017 election where clearly things hadn't gone as we might have wanted you know there was a kind of an erosion maybe of power over time and you know maybe that feels a little bit different to uh, today's number 10 where you know there have been a, a few shocks that have kind of been essentially delivered through the medium of, of news stories all related to things that went on in terms of coronavirus and, and you know is related to lockdown so in Theresa's day it was more kind of a build-up of pressure as I say and there was a point in 2018, I think, where she faced a no-confidence vote and you know, actually won that reasonably comfortably, but it wasn't so comfortable that it totally secured her position for the future. So it wasn't clear, really, in, in her case, I don't think, you know, right until the end, when the end was going to come, but it did feel like a certain amount of authority had, had slipped over time. That was Paul Harrison describing the final days of Theresa May's time in Downing Street. But what now for Boris Johnson? Well, Stephen Swinford is the political editor of the Times and joins me now. Hi, Steve. Hi, Matt. Um, how do you assess Boris Johnson's prospects this morning? 
um, more parties. Uh, one suspects we might find more parties again in the Saturday papers or Sunday papers. This drip, drip, drip. C- can he survive this? It's not a drip, drip, drip anymore. It's a torrent. And I think it's getting very, very difficult for him. So the stuff that's in the Telegraph today is incredibly damaging. It's that combination of them partying at a time when the nation, and particularly the Queen, was mourning. And he might not have been at this. He might have been at Checkers. But you're now looking at at least eight separate events that are being investigated by Sue Gray. There's probably a few more beside that. And it's a real problem for him because when you're looking at the stuff that we're looking at from you, Matt, from the, the polling we're getting, it's damaging. People, people do not believe his account of events. They do not think he's being honest. And they're really angry about it. There is, there is people are talking to me about this in the context of MPs' expenses. And I, I don't know about you, Matt, but the other thing is I can remember we had a leaving due of our own for Francis Elliott uh, during the lockdown. He was my predecessor. He was the former political editor. And it was quite a sad affair. It was on Zoom. Uh, we were all socially distanced. It wasn't a sad affair. I organised a very fun quiz. You were but funny, right. but it wasn't. It wasn't in. <laughs> look, this was around that time, and we yes, weren't. Absolutely. You know, it was. It was. And Francis, a, a lion at the time for decades, and and this was this was the best we could do. And we did the best we could with it, like everyone else. But at the same time, stuff was going on in number ten. I mean, I, I'm getting readouts today of a kind of like a booze culture that was out of control there of people, a 3am booze culture where people were routinely sleeping on sofas, like doing all nighters. It sounds like something out of university, Matt, and not something that you'd expect of people that are actually charged with running the country. So I don't quite understand how the culture descended into that, but it is a real problem for Boris Johnson. And to come back to your original question, can he survive that? Uh, and looking at him in particular, I mean, the poll, it's not just, you know, the mood of uh, Conservative MPs, which matters. The polling is really bad. We saw in the YouGov poll for The Times this week, a 10 point lead uh, that Labour had over the Conservatives, the biggest lead since what well, the end of uh, 2013. And then today we've got YouGov polling on uh, Boris Johnson personally. His personal rating is now on minus 52. His worst ever and worse, actually, than anything that Theresa May experienced, I think YouGov was saying. Um, meanwhile, Rishi Sunak, let's let's move on and look at w- w- possible replacements. Rishi Sunak is on minus four, so 40% are favourable towards him, 44% unfavourable. To put that in context, he's on minus four, Kiss is on minus 19. What really struck me as interesting, Liz Truss, seen as the, you know, one of the front runners alongside Rishi Sunak to replace Boris Johnson, 45% don't know who Liz Truss is well enough to take a view <laughs> on her. That's Which, the point. Well, I mean, the someone point, the point who's is, been in the cabinet yeah. for such a long time—that's quite something. Isn't it? Do you think that's—is that the race? Is it Rishi Sunak versus Liz Truss? It feels like it would be that. But the point we we did a big profile piece on trust on, on Sunak today, and the point that people who genuinely think he would be a good prime minister, who think that Boris is terrible, his allies, they say to us, Rishi is not ready for a leadership contest. He doesn't actually have a kind of Praetorian guard of people in the party. He hasn't been campaigning. He hasn't been cultivating. He's been actually getting on with the job and he's had his nose done. So he might want the leadership, but he's not ready for it. So what it feels to me like is we're possibly entering a kind of slow death here, Matt, with the Prime Minister might survive this. He may, you know, despite all of this torrent of allegations, get through next week. But thereafter, how long is he going to survive for? We've got the local elections. It's kind of drip, drip, drip. And I think the crunch point could come around the summer. And one thing that is underpriced today, I think, Matt, is... Andrew Bridgen, of all people, is underpriced. So Andrew Bridgen 
is a Eurosceptic Tory MP, a Brexiteer. He's a bit of a maverick among MPs, he's a bit eccentric, but he has submitted a letter of no confidence. And that is significant because a lot of the people that have been putting on their head above the parapet so far have been kind of people that already hated Boris. They are people that, uh, you know, were, were on the other side of the Brexit debate, thought he'd be a terrible prime minister and now feel justified in that and are submitting their letters. Andrew doesn't fit into that category. And I wonder how many more people like Andrew we could see in coming days. Uh, yeah, and I, I suppose that's the thing, is that we I spoke to, what was about an hour ago now, we heard from Julian Knight, chair of the Culture Select Committee, uh, accusing Boris Johnson and everyone else in number 10 of, of rank stupidity and keeping an open mind about uh, Boris Johnson's future as, as Prime Minister. And, you know, he's a sort of solid, you know, he's not normally a, 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 the sort of MP who would want to frighten the horses. Yeah, exactly. And and that so there, there is a problem. This is not just, as number 10 would like to depict it, the usual suspects who are having a go at us. This is getting very serious now and very extensive. And like yesterday, I was talking to people in government and they were still saying they thought Boris Johnson could survive this. I think today's welter of allegations is making that a diminished prospect. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box podcast. Do get in touch with your thoughts on the episode. Find us on Twitter at Times Red Box or post a comment on Apple, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Don't forget you can listen to me live on Times Radio now Monday to Friday 10 till 1 on your DAB radio, smart speaker online at times.radio or get the Times Radio app where you can listen to Times Radio live and all of the Times and the Sunday Times podcast, including, of course, your favourite Times Red Box 